following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. When I was in junior high school, or we called it middle school when I went there, I was uh, very actively involved in choir for three years. Every, I think it was Tuesday and Thursday, I would wake up very early, get to school by 6.30, and we would rehearse before classes started. I don't remember if I got any academic credit for this. But one thing that really impressed me about our choir director is he would frequently motivate us by telling us how he was preparing us for the high school choir. He was getting us ready to graduate, to be promoted to a concert choir that would do more and, and bigger uh, concerts with fancier attire and grander venues. And he was right. I don't remember that we ever really traveled anywhere in middle school, though we were a good choir. I think we maybe did one or two competitions. But in high school, I got to sing in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and in uh, Riverside Cathedral, none of which have the gospel, mind you, but they are grand buildings. And I didn't go to Europe because I was poor and broke, but a lot of my classmates even went to Europe with that high school choir while I was in high school. And so this middle school choir director was very wise to set that motivation before us. He wasn't lying. He was telling the truth. Now, do you think it motivated us kids when we were in middle school, wanting to sing in the big kids' choir, wanting to sing with the high schoolers, sing real bass parts and all of that? Of course it did. He knew exactly what he was doing as a good teacher. And likewise, in the workplace, men, sometimes you'll find that you have a supervisor who is particularly good about preparing you for a role that is in your future, for cultivating in you those skills, those competencies, even those gifts of leadership so that you can one day even uh, eclipse him perhaps. Or as he gets promoted, you can be promoted after him. And that's a good boss, a wise man seeking for your promotion. And that's exactly the kind of person we see in John the Baptist this morning. You see this question, you might be thinking, Why is John the Baptist doubting Jesus? But I read that full context there, those first 19 verses of chapter 11, to show you that this isn't about John's doubt. This is about John's wisdom as a discipler of men. From chapters 10 through 16, just backing up a little bit, Christ is is beginning to teach now in the face of increasing opposition and conflict from the Pharisees and their scribes and others who were going to be resisting his rule and reign in Galilee and Judea. And as he embarked on this new leg of his earthly ministry, he first addressed his disciples, his disciples, the twelve, in chapter 10, commissioning them, even ordaining them into service to extend his ministry beyond what he could physically do as, as one person sending them out two by two into six pairings to go and to declare the gospel of the kingdom, even working miracles to confirm this message among the people. And here in the first 19 verses of chapter 11, Jesus addresses 
different disciples. He dresses not his own disciples, but the disciples of John the Baptist, his cousin. And he also makes certain comments about John's ministry and John's person as he takes an opportunity now to unveil more about who he is as well. We know from the unified witness of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that while John the Baptist himself was unwaveringly committed to promoting Christ, John was all about doing what Jesus says here, making uh, clear the way of the Lord for Jesus. His disciples, John's disciples, were not so sure. They weren't entirely convinced that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied of old. And so... This is the conflict here in chapter 11 that we need to bear in mind as we get into our text. John's disciples were frequently targets of the schemes of the Pharisees and their scribes. The Pharisees, whenever they would throw these curveball questions at Jesus, were probably thinking, how can we get John's disciples on our side? And also, how can we pull Jesus' disciples away from him? You need to bear this dynamic in mind as we read these verses and what's going on. Remembering always that John himself, it's never said to us that he stumbled or wavered. We're told he was a prophet and the most noble man ever born of women, even more than a prophet, Jesus says. And so John's on Jesus' side to ensure that his disciples are promoted to a higher school of discipleship, we might say, that they might be advanced from that middle school choir singing in the school auditorium to that high school choir singing in the greatest cathedrals in North America, we might say. So in this interaction with two of John's disciples, Christ makes clear a certain truth of who he is and what he is doing. Namely, Christ's gospel ministry confirmed who he is And the blessing he alone provides to needy sinners. Christ's gospel ministry confirmed who he is. And the blessing he alone provides to needy sinners. We'll consider this under two headings. As we look at verses 2 through 6, we'll consider first how to recognize Christ in his gospel ministry. Namely, John's question and Christ's answer to the question. And then in verse 6, at the end, we'll consider how to receive Christ in his gospel ministry. So, boys and girls, I want you to be able to recognize Christ in his gospel ministry and to receive Christ in his gospel ministry. Indeed, John the Baptist wanted that for his disciples, even as he sought their promotion to that higher school. So first, how to recognize Christ in his gospel ministry. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3 with me. We look at John the Baptist and his question here. Now, when John, while in prison, remember his imprisonment in chapter 4 is what, at least in time, chronologically on the timeline, um, immediately preceded Christ going out to Galilee to start his earthly ministry. Perhaps it even impelled Christ to do that. It was the signal that he needed to get in order to move forward. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. It's, I think it's actually he sent word by two of his disciples, and that's what it tells us in Luke chapter 7, and said to him, this is his question, are you the expected one? I like how the New American Standard capitalizes expected one. It really is a title. Are you the, the one who is to come? You want to hyphenate it? 
and translated a bit more woodenly? Or shall we, should we be looking for somebody else? This is John's question. It's in two parts. Are you the one? Or should we be looking around for somebody else? Now, again, if you study this passage and you look at commentaries, there are faithful commentators who who say that John is expressing a doubt here because Christ hasn't come throwing off Roman oppression and releasing him from prison. And, and there are some valuable lessons if we took that interpretation. You could even say, even the noblest of men will have their doubts and their faith shaken, so be comforted and, and always return to Christ seeking for his teaching. That is true. But on the other side of the equation... And we might list the likes of John Chrysostom and John Calvin and Matthew Henry and others besides and J.C. Ryle. You have uh, those interpreters who I think rightly see what John's doing here. He's asking this question for the sake of his disciples, giving Jesus, teeing him up, if we, we might say, putting the golf ball on the tee so Jesus can just crush that thing 400 yards and get a hole in one, giving him a teaching opportunity to ensure that John's disciples Get this lesson of who Jesus is and what he alone provides, what the nature of his salvation is. Look again what he says. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? This suggests to us that not John was doubting, but that his disciples were full of doubts and uncertainty, that they were thinking we should be looking for somebody else, a great conquering king to arise out of Bethlehem, not this backwater carpenter from Galilee? From Nazareth? What is this about? But John is earnestly promoting his own students into a higher school, pushing them out of their sloth and out of their doubting that they might apprehend and hold fast to Christ Jesus. Indeed, and you seminary students, listen up, but also all you parents, this is the responsibility of every gospel minister and Christian parent, to push his hearers, his disciples, his children, you boys and girls, into the presence of Christ. You will look up to your dad and to your moms as you grow up. And if your moms and dads are good, they're not going to let you stop or write with them. They're going to push you to look beyond them to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. And so go to him, go to his word and say, are you the one who is the source of all wisdom? Are you the one who can mentor me and lead me by your spirit according to your word to live wise and wisely in this world? Or should I be looking for someone else? Should I be looking to a beloved father or mother or friend or public figure or celebrity? Boys and girls, I'm going to tell you something right now. If you're looking up to your parents and you stop there, or you're looking up to some celebrity, some movie star or musician or politician or athlete, there might be certain virtues that they display, but they're going to let you down. They're sinners. All of us are. And John knew that if his disciples stopped with him, they would end up roasting in the pit of hell because what they needed was a savior, not merely a herald. And you see, our savior is here on full display. We must come to Christ and gospel ministers. 
our other pulpit has this plaque on it, and so does the pulpit at Woodruff Road and at Second, and I think Roebuck does as well. It says, show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. This is what we're tasked to do. Take up John the Baptist's example and push your hearers to the feet of Christ. Nowhere else will life and wisdom be found. But I dwell too much on this point. Look at Jesus' answer here in verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Literally, the poor are evangelized. Have the gospel preached to them is a fine translation of that. Luke 7 tells us, indeed, that Jesus actually works miracles in the presence of these disciples. And so even as he's given us the Lord's Supper as a visual representation of his word and of his truth, so too he gave a visible demonstration to these disciples, uh, showing them what it is he was doing, that they might connect the dots all the more between Isaiah 35 and 61, which he quotes, and what he answers them very directly about being the expected one, the one to come, prophesied about in Psalm 118.26, which we considered as our meditation, but also in Psalm 40. Here Jesus doesn't go to the Psalms, but he quotes the prophet Isaiah from these two crucial passages which I mentioned. Isaiah 35, which we read just a few weeks ago in our evening service, last time Mr. Colvin preached, and Isaiah 61, which we read this morning. The former... And we're not going to go there right now because we just don't have the time. But Isaiah 35 gives this glorious description of the prophesied reign of the Messiah, what it will look like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And then Isaiah 61, which we read already this morning, we have this description of the Davidic king's concern for whom? For the afflicted, the poor, the prisoner, the enslaved. Those who mourn over their sins and desire release and seek for the joy of God to come with the Messiah. And Jesus references these two texts in answering the question. Texts which have echoes in Zechariah 11.11, anticipating a good shepherd, a son of David, who will care for the poor and have a regard for the lowly. And also Psalm 72, which is a great messianic psalm describing the king's concern for the poor. Hear these verses from Psalm 72. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also in him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. This is talking specifically, as we know from Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is starting to develop this theme, this is talking specifically and especially of spiritual need, of brokenheartedness, of contrition over sins committed against God and the burdens which weigh down on our backs, Christ is coming for them to save his people from their sin. Now, will that have social implications in the care of the poor? Absolutely. May the Lord grant us opportunities and resources to meet physical needs so that we might address spiritual needs. But what Jesus is saying here in referencing Isaiah 61 and casting himself as this gloriously anticipated king from Psalm 72 is that he comes to raise up the mournful and the downtrodden. He comes to bring new life 
where depression and despondency is found. In other words, yes, Jesus says, I am the expected one, the one expected by the prophets. This strikes at the very heart of the Jewish religion. You boys and girls, are, some of you are working on the catechism. And so if I asked you this question, some of you would be able to answer this. And I hope all of you will be able to answer it in due time. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Perhaps the first question in the Jewish child's catechism in first century Palestine might have been something like this. What are we looking forward to? We are looking forward to the coming of the expected Messiah. This was the central thrust of their discipleship in their homes with their parents. And so when Jesus draws from these texts, he's not just picking them out of left field. He's going right to the very heart of these faithful Jews' religion. Indeed, it would be as if uh, Jesus appeared to us and we weren't so sure and we said, are you the one who's to lead us forth? And he said, I shall show, follow me and I shall show you to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We would all get what he was trying to say, wouldn't we? we would, it would all click for us. Well, then this Christ in Matthew 11 proves it by his works, the works of which John had heard even from prison. How Christ describes his gospel ministry in verses 4 and 5, it wasn't merely informational, mind you. And it wasn't merely demonstrative, but it's also motivational. He gives the information, he gives the demonstration, but he also gives the motivation to these men to follow him even as their disciple, or as John the Baptist is seeking to promote them into his school. Shall we look for someone else, they said. Should we keep up our search in greener pastures, we might say. Christ's answer, it was not merely, well, that would be false. Well, that would be against the facts of the case. No, he says, you should not look for anybody else. The buck stops here. Your search ends here. X marks the spot. This should dispel all doubts of these disciples. And it should drive them then to discipleship in Christ's school. There's no power in the Pharisees who are trying to woo them into their legalism and their external religion. But there is true power and deliverance, and as Matthew makes plain, wisdom for life and for godliness in Christ. In this Jesus who works the works of the Messiah. You and I might not see his works in like fashion today. Indeed, I'm highly suspicious of any claims of uh, miracle working in our day and age. And I'm suspicious of it not because I'm an anti-supernaturalist, but because I'm so enraptured with the Word of God, which is sufficient to prove what Christ is saying about Himself here. This has been supernaturally given to us, that we might see and hear and know Christ as a Messiah. But God can certainly work miracles today. Nevertheless, even this day, when we've come into His worship, when we've been seated under His Word, read and preached, we have heard afresh of all the wonderful works of God in Christ, what He has done. Indeed, what 
The disciples of John will report back to him that the blind have received sight, that the lame have been called up to walk, that the lepers have been cleansed of their defilement and restored to the covenant community, that the deaf can hear the word of God, that the dead are raised up to new life, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them, that captives have been released in the presence of the Savior, this Jesus David's son, David's Lord, the new Moses who leads his people out of captivity, who saves all his people from their sin. Indeed, there is power and deliverance in this Jesus, as I've said. Does this excite you as you hear it? Or is it falling upon your ears as if they were shut up and clogged with earwax? Does this refresh you not only to bask in the literary beauty of Matthew's gospel and how everything fits together, but to follow more closely after Christ. You see, that's my point here. Jesus gives an answer that it's not merely informational, but is motivational. And the Spirit's work in our hearts is to impel us, to compel us by the love of Christ to follow more closely after Him. As a result of having beheld Him in His Word, Hear, read, and preached. In other words, does this message drive you to be a more earnest and eager disciple that in Christ salvation is found? So considering how to recognize, we now have to consider how to receive him. What to do with this motivation, we might say. And it's summarized for us in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me, who is not scandalized by me, who does not stumble over me. First, understand that while preaching the gospel demands a receptive and believing response, you need to recognize this is a true message and, and believe it. It's first a great blessing of God's grace to us, which should be all the more motivation to receive it. You see, in receiving Christ and his words, And receiving what's printed in our Bibles, as God's word here, is great wisdom, blessing, and life. Jesus gives them a beatitude. He doesn't give them a bill that needs to be paid. He gives them like a winning lottery ticket. These guys have hit the jackpot. They've come asking, are you the one whom we've been looking for? And Jesus says, yes, yes, I am. Jackpot. I mean, this is is what they're after. And now, because they've received from Christ that which he alone can give, now they can go and they can serve him as they've been yearning to serve him. You're winning the lottery, not not under compulsion, having to do anything with it, but now being spiritually enriched so that you can glorify and enjoy God in Christ. That is what is meant here by blessed is he, as he declares this beatitude. To remind you, because it's been a little while since we looked at the first uh, 12 or 13 verses of Matthew chapter 5, but just to remind you of what a beatitude is, a beatitude is a statement of vitality. It's a statement of life. It's an indicative, not an imperative. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, not you should be mourning, So this is a statement of life. In this is fullness of life and flourishing that uh, that you do not take offense at me. 
You wish to know the way of life and to distinguish it from the way of death? The Pharisees have the way of death, but I have the way of life. Don't be offended at my message. Don't be offended by the cross. Don't be offended by the carpentry. Don't be offended by Nazareth or Galilee. Don't be offended by my fishermen disciples and these tax collectors and sinners with whom I share meals. No, if you wish to live, this is the way of life. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So then what is the nature of the reception of how we receive Christ in his gospel ministry when it comes to us? It is unashamed ownership. Unashamed ownership of Christ. Boys and girls, when you receive a gift from your grandparents, how will your grandparents know that you have received it with gladness and sincerity. If you take it, you unwrap that present, and you get that toy you want, or that construction kit you want, or whatever it is, or that dress, or that set of markers. You, you fill in the blanks, whatever it is you like. If you take it and you say, oh, thanks, Grandma, and you throw it in the trash, have you really received it? No, of course not. You are ashamed of it. You have stumbled over it. You've been offended by this present. But if you take that gift and, you, and your eyes get wide and you say, this is what I wanted. I'm so glad. And you go and you tell your brothers and your sisters, look what I got. Look what grandma gave me. You are unashamedly owning that gift and receiving it. How much more then should we unashamedly receive and own Christ in his gospel ministry? This is what resting upon Christ alone for salvation looks like. The old Puritan writers called it rolling themselves upon Christ, which is a picture of running into the door at the end of a a day when you've been working hard and just throwing yourself on your couch or your bed and just resting on Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he goes on to say he's under obligation to Jews and Greeks to proclaim this gospel. He's unashamedly owning Jesus Christ. In Psalm 40 verse 9, we read, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. This is what unashamed ownership looks like. This is what receiving Jesus Christ looks like. Why is this so important? Because Jesus Christ, his message, it is a rock of stumbling and offense. How many of us have Brothers, sisters, moms, and dads, uh, nieces and nephews, or grandchildren, or neighbors who hate the gospel. I'll never forget when my older brother said to me, Zach, this Jesus thing works for you, but I don't want to hear about it anymore. Don't say his name in my presence. Why would he do that? Because Jesus Christ is a rock of stumbling and offense. We're told this much in the Word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, we read, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and to this doom they were also appointed, Peter says. 
about unbelievers in relation to Christ, citing Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And indeed, Jesus says one of his teaching goals, one of his teaching objectives with his disciples is in John 16, verse 1, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling because he knew, he knew the kind of offense he would cause among their associates and among their hearers. He knew the scandal of his hometown. He knew the scandal of his background as a poor carpenter. He knew the scandal of um, the cross. The scandal of what we will do this morning. You know, in the early church, when they would observe the Lord's Supper and say they were eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ, do you know what they were accused of? They were accused of cannibalism. And they they referred to the communion as a love feast. And so they were also accused of incest because they would refer to each other as brother and sister, having a love feast, feasting upon their Savior's body and blood. That is incredibly scandalous in the eyes of anybody with any semblance of reason. Are you ashamed of Christ? Or do you recognize the glorious gospel and salvation which is offered here in his word? In his word, apprehended by faith and visibly beheld in the sacraments. What we're considering this morning in Matthew 11, 2, 6, it's not an ordination sermon. That was Matthew 10. But I want to say that in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6, we're, we're receiving something of a commencement address, which is kind of funny to say at the beginning of a school year. But that's like the graduation speech. When you graduate, when you're promoted from uh, one school into the school of hard knocks, into life, or perhaps from high school into college, or middle school into high school. And I guess they do kindergarten graduations now into first grade. Um, In these words of Christ, in verses 2 through 6, he's marking the promotion of John's disciples into a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the Messiah. And what he's showing them in in this biblically rich answer as he's drawing from Isaiah's prophecy. What he's showing them is that his gospel ministry, what he did and what he taught and what he proclaimed in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, that he came to save sinners from their sins and indeed that he would die on a cross to pay the penalty for their sins, confirmed who he is and confirmed that he alone had a blessing for needy sinners. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. They had nothing on offer. But Christ alone could give what you and I need as brokenhearted sinners, bearing a burden on our shoulders, seeking for release from captivity to sin. And we, too, have heard this morning, just as they, these disciples of John, have heard. And at the Lord's table, I contend that we see his gospel and his salvation even more fully pictured for us than the miracles if we had seen them in living color. Here the word is visibly expressed to us. The miracle of Christ among us. Christ's spiritual present among us. His sacrifice on our behalf. Let us pray. O Lord our God in heaven, we bless your name and we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your Christ. We thank you that by his wounds we are healed. 
And by his blood, we are sanctified to come into the Father's presence to enjoy communion with you. We thank you for the Spirit's work of uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling that we might behold you as you are and delight in you for all eternity. We thank you for life, even as we remember his death and celebrate him until he comes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.